Over the past couple of months, Adelaide was uh, taking a shadow puppet class. It's kind of interesting with shadow puppets as you look at the screen and you see what appears to be lions moving on across the screen or a bear or a horse or whatever it might be. And you, you can really begin to think as you look up there, is there, is there really a lion behind the screen? Is he about to jump out and get us? But when you, when you go around behind and you, and you look, you realize that, that there's a big difference between the shadow and the reality. And it's actually kind of disappointing. Because when you get behind there, you realize there wasn't a lion back there after all. This is a little girl with a piece of paper on a stick that looks like a lion, but the shadow and the reality are vastly, vastly different. But how different, though, is that from a human shadow? With a, a human shadow, as you look at as a shadow from the sun or a light uh, cast behind us is on the ground, you, you're able to see a little bit of the reality of who we are in that shadow. Our, our form, our outline, the fact that we might have fingers, we can see it move, but you can't see it completely, can you? There's a big difference between the shadow and the reality. But in the case of, of, of a human shadow, the reality is so much more glorious and magnificent. For the shadow on the ground can't speak. It can't talk. You can't see the color of its eyes. It can't give you a hug or feel the warmth of its skin. It, it has no story. It can't share its life with you, comfort you, care for you, celebrate with you. But the reality is completely different. And although you see it in, in some form in the shadow, the reality behind the shadow is far more than you could ever grasp or understand if all you're looking at is the shadow. We've been working our way through uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, we're in chapter 8 of Second uh, of Samuel uh, this morning. Remember, we've uh, seen in the, the previous uh, chapter, in chapter 7, God has been giving these incredible, incredible promises to David, his chosen king. Uh, and and the, the, the rule and the reign of, of, of David and these promises are extremely important to the people of God throughout the rest of the Scriptures. These promises in chapter 7 continue to be looked back on throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even carrying on into the New Testament, longing for and anticipating the coming of this king that God would promise, the forever ruler, and of his kingdom that he will, he will bring. Uh, and as we've, well, we, we've seen so far, though, in, uh, in, in First and Second Samuel, David is not this perfect king. We're able to see shadows, shadows that point us 
to the greater reality of the one who is to come. We can learn an incredible amount from what we are seeing as God is establishing his kingdom in its seed form, and this ruler that he has chosen. But we will not be able to see and understand the fullness of it unless we see the reality of the one behind the shadow and that all of it is pointing to and is fulfilled in Jesus. This morning, that's what we want to do is we're looking at chapter 8. We're going to see here in chapter 8 that God is beginning to fulfill these promises that he's made back in chapter 7. Particularly, we're going to see that in, in, in chapter 8 how God is beginning to fulfill that promise that God would defeat his enemies. How God is beginning to fulfill the promise that God will build a temple. And how God is beginning to fulfill the promise that his throne will be established forever. We want to look at it both in the shadow form in David's time and also then compare it to the reality behind the shadow of how it's fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. So if you would, look with me. Chapter 8, the book of 2 Samuel. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 260. We're going to look at the whole chapter together this morning. Starting in verse 1. Remember, this is the Word of God. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took uh, Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in uh, Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Beth, uh, Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to Yahweh, together with silver and gold that he uh, dedicated from all the nations that he subdued, from Edom. Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And Yahweh gave uh, victory to David wherever he went. 
So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Zeruiah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your sufficient word that you've given to us, your people. We pray this morning that not only would we grasp and understand the shadow, but that you would point us to the reality of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So what we want to do uh, as we look at this passage is is see God's fulfilling these promises from chapter 7 and look at them to see how uh, both look at the the shadow of its fulfillment during the time of David and look also forward to the reality of its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. We're going to look at uh, at three components that we we pick up and see that were promised uh, to David in chapter 7. So defeat of God's enemies, the building of God's temple, and the establishment of God's uh, throne. So kids, if you're tracking along and you want to keep a count of words to listen to, uh, you can listen for enemies, uh, for temple, and for throne. Enemies, temple, and throne. Uh, So first, let's let's look and and see uh, the the promise that God has given and, and the shadow of its fulfillment in the defeat of God's enemies. Remember back over in chapter 7 what God promised to David in verse 10 and 11. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. That was God's promise. Desire to provide peace for his people, a secure place to live, and that the enemies of God and the enemies of his king would be brought to an end. And look at how we begin to see this fulfilled in this very chapter. Notice, beginning even in in verse 1, After this, remember the promise made and then David's prayer of praise and response? After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took uh, uh, Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And that, that language continues to come up. Defeated, defeated, defeated. Here, David defeats the Philistines. Then it tells us in verse 2, he defeated Moab. And it gives us this very gruesome and graphic account of his defeat and conquering of them. Well, not only does he defeat Moab, but he has them all laid down in these long lines. Two of the lines of the people he slaughters. One line, he extends mercy, and they're allowed to go back to their nation. Notice it tells us in the end of verse 2 that they became servants to David. Then in verse 3 again, it tells us, David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob. And then what? The Syrians come out wanting to get the back of Hadadezer? And his army, and what does David do? It tells us in verse 5, David strikes them down. 
And then he puts garrisons in, in, the, the, in, in Aram of Damascus, and they become servants to, to David. And it tells us and summarizes it there for us uh, of how this is coming about. Is it through David's might? Is it through his skill? Joab's aggressive attacks and plans? No. No. It's, it's not in David's strength. It's not in David's might. It's God who is the one who is doing the work. Look at what it tells us at the end of verse 6. Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. It tells that again as it's summarizing it later on when it, it, it touches on the fact that David in verse 13 goes and strikes down the Edomites. He puts garrisons there. They become his servants, just like we see the pattern with all of these nations. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And in fact, in verse 12, we hear the, the, the summary of all of these nations that David subdued. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. What's What's going on here? Is this just, are they just David's enemies? Is David just going out and picking random fights with people and God's on his side because God's in the business of, of establishing some bully kingdom in this region of the Middle East? No. We have to remember what is going on here. This isn't just because David has decided, I want to expand and build a worldwide power for David's kingdom never expands and extends outside of the boundaries that God gave the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel needed to remember, I'm not giving you this land because you're so righteous. I'm giving you this land for two reasons. One, I promised it to your father Abraham. Two, it's because of how wicked these nations are. And I'm going to use you to bring a, a breaking in of my end-time judgment on these people. Because what is God communicating here through the defeat of His enemies through His anointed King? That the kingdom of God cannot and will not coexist with nations and people who refuse to acknowledge the lordship and kingship of God's anointed one, who refused to submit to him and follow him, to lay down their claims of authority and look to him as being the ruler and the king. Because ultimately what's going on here is it, it's, it's not just that these people are, are rebelling against David. Because remember, whose throne does David sit on? It's God's throne. Whose kingdom is being established? It's God's kingdom. And as these nations attack God's people and persist in their rebellion, I mean, these nations, how long have they seen evidence of the work of the one living and true God through signs and wonders and powers from Egypt that all of them knew? What happened in Egypt was a big deal. The surrounding nations knew of it. It didn't happen in some dark corner in the Belvedere of the ancient Near East, right guys? Everybody knew when this happened. Yet they continue to persist in their rebellion, attacking God's people. It's not only them, these other 
communities that come up. Edom, Moab. They weren't a part of the promised land. God's people weren't to attack them and take their land because they're descended from Abraham. Edom is the nation that descended from Esau. Moab descended from Lot. Yet they're refusing to acknowledge God's sovereign choice of where the promised one is going to come and where his kingdom resides. And they continue to rebel against God and his purposes in the world. And God says, no, this will not happen. And through my king, I will bring an end. We see here shadows of God saying, rebellion against me will not last. Through my king, I will bring judgment against your treason, against your rebellion. Is this only true, though, for people who dwelled in the promised land? What about elsewhere, throughout all the world? What about elsewhere, throughout space and time and history. This is where it's important for us to understand the shadow that we're seeing here and the reality later. You think this description of David's interaction with the Moabites and nation after nation that he defeated through the work of God is hard to hear and gruesome and graphic? Flip to the end of the Bible. Flip to... Revelation chapter 9. As God's people were suffering greatly under the assault from the Roman Empire, Jesus, the resurrected King who was ascended to the Father, who's ruling and reigning, uh, appears in a vision to one of his followers, one of his disciples named John, who Jesus designated as one of his authorized spokespersons. And he gives John a, a, a... a, a look into, a vision, a, and a peek into the reality of what is coming. And listen to how he describes Jesus in this passage. I've never seen this drawn in a kid's Bible. Listen one. When I saw heaven and earth, uh, uh, when I saw heaven opened, this is beginning in verse 11. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus John is talking about. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the the fury of the wrath of of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, 
to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence, who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the picture of Jesus that you have. The humble servant. The moral ethicist. No. Just a good teacher. When Jesus comes, He's coming as the sovereign ruler and king of all things. And He will defeat His enemies. What we see with Moab and Edom... And the Amorites and the Philistines is just a shadow of the reality of what is coming for all those who persist in their rebellion against Jesus. And the slaughter will be so great that one of the proclamations of the angels will be for the birds to come to feast on the slain who failed to submit to and give up their rebellion against their king. This is Jesus. This is reality. This is the truth of God's kingdom, and it has implications for everyone. Not just those who lived in Israel during the time of David, but for all of us. Not just kings and nation leaders, but small and great. Significant and insignificant. All who rebel against Jesus. Do you hear this warning? Now maybe if you've been here over the past couple of months, you're like, man, you guys sure do talk about sin a lot. This has come up before. Because we've seen in this, in the establishment of God's kingdom, is enemies have been defeated. But we talk about this because the Scriptures talk about this. And God is wanting to make it clear How the coming of His kingdom impacts the life of every human in this room, in our world, and who has ever existed. I was reading an article this week about a a lady who was attending this woman's conference. It was a woman's health and wellness conference. And she was wearing a a shirt that that stopped just above her shoulder, so her, her upper arm was exposed. And she had this birthmark that uh, looked kind of like the shape of a, a rose on her arm uh, for a while, uh, really since she was young. And uh, this lady came up to her as she was at a booth, and she said, excuse me, um, but have, have you ever had anybody look at that mark on your arm? And the lady was kind of taken aback. She's like, yeah. And then the lady said, how long ago? And she started counting, looking back in her calendar. Well, I don't know, three years maybe? And she's, Jackie was the, the woman who's telling this story. She says, the woman then pressed me. And she said, you don't understand how serious this is. 
But on Monday, when you get back, you must call your dermatologist and you must go in and have that looked at immediately. She's like, I am a, a nurse at a plastic surgeon's office. And you do not understand how important this is that you must go in and, and have it checked out. She went in and found out it was an extremely aggressive form of skin cancer. And that if it had not been removed and cut out, it would have taken her life you see, the woman who was communicating and telling her about these, this horrible thing that was on her arm. And if the doctors who then told her, what you have is cancer and it will kill you, if Jackie had not listened to them and the warnings and of what would be true at the end of the story, she would have died. Do you hear what your God is telling you? As a faithful minister of the gospel, I am called to press in, like this nurse did to Jackie at the women's conference. Do you know Jesus? Are you rebelling against him? Because if you are, hear the warning now. You don't have skin cancer. You have cancer of the heart, and it's called sin. And unless it's dealt with, this will be the result for you. Don't wait till Monday. Deal with it now. If you are a believer here, one who would, has been, would say that you're following Christ, you and I both need to recognize we were His enemies. We've not been redeemed and saved because we're so righteous. What we deserve is to be in the two lines that were slaughtered. To be those that are feasted on by the birds. But, but it seems, is it possible that there's a way for this not to be the result? Is there a way to escape this reality of the coming of God's kingdom? That God will defeat His enemies as He establishes His kingdom. Is there hope? Only Israel? Look. Look, as this continues to go on. Remember God's promise. What did He promise to David? Remember, David wanted to build God a temple, a temple of stone and of precious metals. And God said, no, not now for you. We need to establish the peace and security of my people, but your son will build it. You remember that part of the promise? Notice here how God is beginning to establish and work at the building up of this temple. Notice in verse 2, this language keeps coming up throughout this passage. At the end of verse 2, the last sentence there, and the Moabites became servants of David and brought tribute. That language comes up over and over throughout the, the passage. Up in verse 6, the Syrians are defeated, they become servants to David, and they bring tribute. It tells us in verse 7, David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from uh, Betah and from Barathai, the cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. And then further down, verses, in verses 10 uh, and, and following, 
Toy sends his son Joram, and they bring uh, him uh, these articles of silver and gold and bronze. And notice what it says David is doing with all of these items and this tribute that he gets. In verse 11, these also David dedicated to Yahweh together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued. What does it mean that David is dedicating all of this tribute, all of these precious stones and metals that he's getting from the nations? David is preparing for the building of the temple. David is setting aside all that he he gets from the conquering of these nations, not for himself. He brings it to Jerusalem to put in his palace? No. To set aside to build a palace for his God. But what does that even mean? A temple. You remember? What happens in the temple? It's where blood sacrifices for sin takes place. Where God has said to his people, I'm going to dwell in your midst. You are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God and we're going to live together in this land and I'm providing what is needed to deal with your sin. You are no longer my enemies. You are my people. I'm moving into the neighborhood and you are a part of my family. You see, the the building of this temple that is no longer going to be a tent, but that's going to be permanent and, uh, well, until the people rebel, but we'll get to that later. In the midst of God's people, he's saying, there is a way for you not only to stop being enemies, but to be brought close in to an intimate and personal relationship of love and fellowship with me. But that brings up a question. Maybe that's true for Israel. But is this offer being extended? Is there any hope for the rest of the nations? Look at Toy and his son. Look down in verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. What do you notice that's different? about Toy and Joram's response to the establishment and the advancement of God's kingdom. They don't rebel. They say, I'm going to bless this king. I'm going to seek the mercy of this king. And it's interesting. The name of Toy's son, Joram, that's not a a Hamathite name. It's a Hebrew name. It means Yahweh is exalted. How is it that one who is coming from a pagan nation, his name could be changed, mercy and grace could be extended to him, and now what he is known by is one whose name is Yahweh is exalted. We're beginning to see a shadow here. There's something about the work that God is wanting to do through his kingdom and his king that will make former rebels and 
Idolaters become those who exist, whose existence demonstrates and proclaims the worship and exaltation of the one living and true God. If that's the shadow here of, of just Joram in the midst of all that's going on, what about the reality when Jesus comes of the temple that is being built? We've been discussing as a family about building some gingerbread houses this year. In the past, we've bought the kits. You know, the gingerbread comes already made. It's in a box. Who knows how long it's been in there? Pretty stale, pretty hard. But, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. We got a, a magazine in the mail of the guy who's been, the, he just recently died, I think, who's been the chef at the White House for years and they showed some of these incredible creations that this guy made of gingerbread houses of the White House and all of this stuff. It's incredible. I guarantee you he's not using store-bought, cardboard-tasting gingerbread to build these masterpieces. Because there's something about the materials that are used and the one for whom it's being built that you want to make it special. We had a friend in St. Louis. He worked for a hinge company. His family owned it. He got calls multiple times from sheiks in Dubai. Guess what they wanted him to make? Gold-plated hinges for their homes, for their dwelling places, to demonstrate their glory. Now we've moved from gingerbread to gold-plated hinges, parts that... If you're not even paying attention to, you don't even know they're there until they start squeaking. But the materials that you use reflect the glory of the one that dwells within it, right? What is David building this temple out of? Stones? Precious metals? Look over in Ephesians. This is a, a letter written by another one of Jesus authorized spokespersons, a man named Paul, who himself was once a rebel, who became one who was, through the work of Christ, turned into a worshiper and a proclaimer of the excellencies, who exalted Christ as king. Listen to what is described here. We see a shadow form of what God is doing, of dwelling in the midst of His people. But Joram gives us a peek into the heart of God for the nations. And listen to what Paul says of the reality of the work that now that Christ, the heir of David, the ruler who is on the throne, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that means non-Israelites, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The shadow. One building in the midst of a geographical area in Jerusalem. What does the reality point us to? A temple being built out of those former enemies that God's redeeming and bringing into His household. Now, where does the temple lie? Everywhere the people of God reside and live. Because of what Jesus is doing. There's no need for a temple anymore made of hands. Anytime you've heard that what we're hoping and longing for is when the Jews start constructing and building the temple again. That's rebellion. There is no need for it to be built again because Jesus has finished His work and He is already building a temple that surpasses that through the redemption of Gentiles like you and me who are being grafted into the people of God. And He is building this far superior temple that proclaims and demonstrates His glory and that all of us, like Joram, are brought into His people. How? Through our righteousness? No. Through the mercy of our King who comes and... Do you hear what he preaches? Peace. You've got to hear both messages of Jesus. Wrath and destruction if you do not repent and turn to me. But I'm offering you peace. Lastly, look. The defeat of God's enemies, the building of God's temple, and lastly, the establishment of God's throne. Look at how it describes David's rule and his reign as he sits on the throne in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. David's now ruling over all of the people of God. Notice how his reign is described. How the throne, the, the, the leadership of David, is one of justice and equity. He's seeking to care for and rule the people in accordance to God's good laws in His Word. He's making sure that nobody in His his nation is taken advantage of. The poor, the outsider, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, those who are being taken advantage of. David is ruling in such a way that justice comes about and they are cared for. He's binding up the wounds of the brokenhearted, those who have been mistreated, that they find dignity and rest and peace under his rule and his authority. But if you know anything about David, you know this doesn't continue. The throne that God is establishing and that David sits on, he begins, he does not relate to all of his, his people like this. And then when we start reading about his heirs who come after him, they fall far, far short. But the people of God continue to hope. And the prophets point God's people back over and over and over and over again to this promise of one who will come, who will sit on the throne of David and who will rule 
forever, perfectly. Look over in Isaiah 9 as we close up. Isaiah is one of God's prophets who, like all of God's prophets, continue to point the people of God back to this promise of the king who will come from the line of David. Listen to what he says in verse 9, or starting in verse 6, sorry, of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. It's actually the same, same two words that are used there, just translated a little different. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. You see, the shadow is a mere man, a sinful man, sitting on the throne of God, who, through God's grace, does at times rule his people well, but who falls far, far short. Our hope and the promises of God demand no mere man, but it necessitates God himself to enter into our world and take on flesh that our mighty God and would be the heir of David who would rule in justice and righteousness and equity over his people forever. There'll never be an end. There'll never be an heir to come who can mess it up. There'll never be a time where Jesus sins and makes a mistake and takes advantage of you. No, the ruler, the reality of the shadow that we saw in David has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is our mighty God, who is our Prince of Peace, who rules and He reigns. And if you are found in Him, you place your faith and hope and trust in Him, that peace that He offers will never end. You'll never have to worry. Man, it's been about four billion years that we've been worshiping Jesus here on earth. You think he's going to remember what I did back in 2022 and come back and kick me out of his kingdom? No, no, no. The reality is far greater than the shadow. We're seeing it. God will defeat his enemies. God will build his temple and God will establish His throne forever through Jesus Christ, the good and gracious and righteous King. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that we're not just talking about any book or, or story. We're talking about what is true what has really happened and what really will happen. Give us eyes to see through the shadow and past the shadow to the reality of Christ. May our hope and our confidence and our response be 
to bless him and to call out for him for mercy and to rest and abide and dwell in his peace and his love. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.